Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Here at the fifth quarter, I think part of our job that Layson and I take pride in is bringing quality guests. And our next guest is someone, the highest compliment in the basketball world is someone that's a lifer. And, and Coach Mike DeVilbis is a lifer. He's got a ton of wins. He has a couple losses. But I think what separates him is the number of lives that he's touched throughout his journey. And those kids that are now successful, you know, parents, lawyers, doctors, coaches, teachers, uh, they would share a lot of stories. And that, and that may be the next one. Someday we get uh, some of those uh, young people to brag. But, Coach, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you so much, Jeff. Very kind. You guys having me on. I really appreciate it. Every time you reach out and ask me to come, it just means a lot to me. And uh, thank you for your kind words. I appreciate it. Coach, maybe take a 30-second or a full timeout and kind of – you have so long. We could fill the podcast with your history, but maybe give us a little quick catch up. Uh, like current or kind of the whole journey or, or how? What do give you us the journey because uh, I think young coaches and Layson and I talk about it because all of us aren't young anymore. Nope. They miss out learning from some of us middle age plus, as we say, wink, wink, yeah. coaches. Yeah. But I think. Let's catch them up on some of your journeys, okay. and then we'll do a deep Let dive. Let me say one thing to tail off on that real quick before I start on my journey. One of the things, I think there's a couple things that have really hurt coaches' development, and that is the advent of the early signing period, which eliminated basketball camps. And in the summer, being around Jerry Krause, who's my grad school advisor, Mike Krzyzewski called Don, Don Meyer the greatest teacher of coaches in the history of the game. But when I walked into Eastern Washington, Jerry Krause and Don Meyer and Dan Hayes and Fred Litzenberger and all those guys were at Eastern Washington running camp. And, I, and I'm like, as soon as I got there, I, I realized all these things I craved as a player to learn about the game. I was getting to learn. It was like, holy cow, you know, the light, you know. And um, I think that's really hurt coaches' development. I know the video has really, really helped give people an opportunity to learn. But I think you miss that, the camp experience and what that brought to kids and coach, coaches in particular was just unbelievable networking. And you had to work hard. You know, you could see people's work ethic in a week long, six weeks of camp at Eastern Washington in the gym when it's 100 degrees out and working at eight in the morning till nine at night, six days a week. And get paid $200 and then another 20 bucks for managing a dorm, you know, that was, that was pretty good. Um, but my journey, uh, started, uh, I grew up in the Chicago area, played high school basketball, uh, basketball in Illinois was very revered when I was growing up. And I, I just, the first time I saw coach Knight, coach on the big 10 network, this is Prior to ESPN, you only got to see three college basketball games a week, the two Big Ten games of the week. 
on Saturday, and then whoever UCLA was playing uh, either Saturday later afternoon or Sunday, and that was it. That's all you saw, and I, and and I never realized. I guess I was smart enough when I was young to know I wasn't going to make a living playing ball. But then I saw this guy coaching, and I'm like, hmm, you can make a living doing that. And that's when I realized I wanted to do that. And I went to Winona State, played there, uh, just loved playing, loved the game, loved learning. I got to play against Dick Bennett's teams at Stevens Point, and I knew those kids were learning a system. That system was so good, so hard to play against, you know. And um, <clears throat> it was really neat that Dick and I became friends later on, and uh, – especially well when he came to Washington state and I was at Idaho but anyway um so then I, I got my foot in the door at eastern washington my family moved to spokane when i was an undergrad and my sister was getting married i was out for her wedding and this uh, <laughs> back then the head coach bill smith peters put an ad article in the newspaper to hire an assistant coach if you can believe that and so i answered the thing i say hey, i'm out here and he goes where are you from and i told him illinois he says you need to come out and see me so I went out and saw him at camp, and he's from Mount Vernon, Illinois. So we hit it off right away. And um, he played on some of those really good Mount Vernon teams back in the 50s. And um, he said, I, I'm going to hire a female in this position. I know who I'm going to hire, but I got a GA for you. I said, I'll be here. And so that's how I got my foot in the door. Um, this is very random. Well, I was there two years. We played in the NCAA tournament. The second year, we're the only women's basketball team to play in a tournament. From Eastern, and that was in '87, and I got the head coaching job at Lewis Clark State because the offensive line coach for Dick Zorns at Eastern Washington, Larry Hadamer, his daughter was playing for us, and he and Dick Hannon, the AD at Lewis Clark State, coached together at Lower Columbia Junior College. So I heard a great thing the other day. It's not who you, who you know; it's who knows you. And um, I got my foot in the door. I, I was a head coach at 28 years old at Lewis Clark State. I was there 14 years, and it was program was in awful shape when I got it. Ed Chefs winning all kinds of stuff in baseball, and I'm like, I want to do that. I learned everything I could from him, and we got six straight national tournaments. And um, took me eight years to took us eight years to get there. But great kids. I just had a tremendous experience. Loved it there. Um, seven years as the head coach at Idaho, had some great years there when we were in the big West and, um, uh, played for two big West championships. And, um, you know, we, we won a bunch and lost some too near the end. And, uh, we went into the whack. That was a big, big jump for us at that time, which is now the equivalent to the mountain West. Basically there's a little more than we could bite off to be honest with you. And I got let go. And then, um, I was associate head coach at Wisconsin Green Bay and had a great run there for four years. We went to four straight tournaments. I think we were like, I don't know what the number was, but like 124, 25, and 12 in the four years I was there. We won, played in three second rounds in the NCAA tournament and uh, Sweet 16 and just had tremendous run um, and then went to Illinois and um, – you know, we were there three years. I was the associate head coach there. The first year there, we had the first winning season in the Big Ten. It's in 25 years. I think we were nine and seven and went to the Sweet 16, or no, the Elite Eight of the NIT. And, um, you know, so then I was out, um, ended poorly, 
And uh, I got a chance to be, well, great friend of mine who will always be one of my friends is a great guy at, at runs a club in Nebraska and Lincoln. He gave me a job for a year, kind of get my feet under me again. And so I did that. And then I interviewed for um, three or four WNBA assistant jobs. Agler had me down to LA and I didn't get that. And, and I uh, was really looking forward to that. And then I wasn't sure what we were going to do. My wife and I are trying to figure out what to do. And we decided to come back to Spokane. I started working for Northwestern Mutual. I did not like financial planning. I got my six and 63. I uh, did that for almost two years. Uh, and then I got a chance to be an AD at this high school because this, the principal had been a, an adult learner at Lewis Clark state when I was there. And um, they had a really, well, I'll just, I'll just share with you. It's very authentic. Their quarterback committed suicide in the spring. And he said, Mike, I want my, it just rocked me. He said, it made me take a really hard look at what we're not providing for our children. And he said, it's grit, you know, and I know education's taken that word and tried to spin it and make it something it's not, you know, how they do. And, and grit comes only from getting through struggle. That's how you grow grit. And he said, Mike, I want my athletic department to look like your teams did at Lewis Clark State. And I said, well, now there's some stuff comes with that. And you need to you need to understand that. I said, I'm not going through all that again. And he said, no, no, it'll, it'll be great. And well, then I had this. I did that for three years, had this opportunity to go coach in Hungary. So I did it. And, um, you know, now working for Dan Tudor uh, when I was in Hungary, I, I was we were talking about before we came on the air that. Um, I had a chance to go coach in Hungary and then they didn't get some money they thought they were going to get. And so I got sent home and right after my time at Northwestern Mutual, Dan called me and asked me to come work for him. And I just wasn't in a position I needed salary and benefits. And, and so I had to go take this AD job, but Dan said, we're going to do some work together. He said, might be three years, might be four, but we're going to do some work together. And I said, what, why do you feel that strongly about me? We, you know, we just know kind of of each other. And he goes, Mike, you got a great story to tell and you can really help coaches. And I said, Oh, I got story to tell and scars approve it. And, and, and he's right. I, I am in a position where I can really help coaches and I love doing it. I love what Dan does. And when I knew I was coming home from Hungary, I emailed him and or texted him and reminded him of that conversation we had several years before but the unique thing, you know, I was telling you about the journey and, and everything kind of works itself together. All those skills that I learned at Northwestern Mutual have really helped me working for Dan. Like I've been able to get in front of a lot of people and really help a lot of coaches. And it's been really empowering for me personally um, to really be in this situation now. You know, it's been a really long journey. The one thing I want to say, you were talking about young coaches. Um you know, we when I started at Eastern Washington, he, coach said he had a GA spot, but he didn't tell me it was going to cost me ten thousand to coach. <laughs> so my GPA wasn't high enough as an undergrad to actually get an assistantship. So I had to take credits for the first semester and then appeal to get into the grad school the, for uh, the end of that quarter. And uh, see if I could get in. If I didn't get in, I was going, I didn't know what I was, I was out. And my wife and I had just gotten married and I didn't tell her. Yeah, we don't laugh about this too often, but I didn't tell her that that was the case when we moved out to Spokane 
from from Fountain City, Wisconsin, where she's from. And anyway, I got like a three eight and got into grad school, but I had to pay. I paid ten grand the first year, and then the next year I got an assistantship and got my school paid for, and got you know I got to coach and everything, but. It was all work study money the first year, but I was paying. It cost me 10 grand. So I think anybody who loves to coach does whatever they got to do to get their foot in the door and get going, you know, because getting your foot in the door is huge, getting started. And I'm with you. I think the old camps used to be the way you earned your stripes. And I was fortunate enough to be, meet Kathy Rush, Immaculata, did 12 weeks. Coach Mike was overpaid because I only got $180 lace. And I, <laughs> I first filled up my car. That was the first thing I did was fill up the car. Yeah. I'd go to the New Britain Inn. It's still there. You worked all day. You coached a game and then ref the game or vice versa. You did yeah. that twice a day. You had stations. You network with people. The college coaches were at the New Britain Inn. You'd come in and you'd stay up all night sharing stories, asking questions, you know, and and we're all from the same cloth where you listened more than you talked, but you had a work ethic and you learned it. And and sadly, I think a lot of people are missing that. One of the stories I share, Mike, is I think a lot of people, you find out if you want to coach when you're a head coach in junior college because you're sweeping the gym, you're recruiting, you're placing, you're coaching and scouting, and, and it's so much. But, Mike, let me ask you, obviously you have had some great coaches or influencers. Who's had a big imprint on you, and when did you really get what it means to be a coach? Whoa. There's a lot of people. I mean, Coach Kraus and Coach Meyer, you know, I learned the game from them and Coach Bennett um, playing against his teams and then talking with him so much when he was at Washington State. When I was at Idaho, our campuses were seven miles apart. He didn't he barely remembered me because I wasn't much of a player. But I went over and introduced myself and we got to talking and we played golf together a few times. And then when I went to Green Bay, um, you know, I think Dick on the defensive side of the ball. And then Don, I think so much, uh, Don and Jerry Krause, Fred Litzenberger, and then Bill Smith-Peters, the women's coach at Eastern who gave me an opportunity. Bill was such a a kind human being and just taught me how to coach women and the mentality I think that you have to have to coach women. And it's a little different than the men's game. I I think coaches make a mistake sometimes when you watch something, um, even technically, but especially in building culture and climate, excuse me, in a women's program is so much different than how you have to build culture and climate in a men's program. But technically on the floor too, you see a lot of coaches make a mistake because they see the men doing it on the court. So they think it automatically fits the women's game. I'll give you an example, like the ball screen motion for the men, their mentality is when you set a ball screen, just rim run. They don't care which way you turn. I think personally in the women's game, it's still real important to pick and roll. Like in the old school, you turn and seal them behind you. So if they're switching, now you got a pin. Well, in the men's game, they don't care about that because they just throw the ball up by the rim and they jump up and get it. So they just want to get to the rim fast. Well, it's more effective to turn and seal and rim run 
on the women's side because that's still highly effective. That's one example of, and I don't just don't think you can take something that happens in the men's game and move it right to the women's. You know, I think people make that mistake sometimes. I don't know how I got off on that. It wasn't what you were asking. No, no, no. It was great. And I'm with you. Like we'll watch games and I don't watch a lob set coaching women because we don't throw alley-oops, but in the men's game, people can throw a cross court pass on a line where on the girls game, you can gamble because it's going to be a moon with arc and you can intercept. But uh, coach, you just brought up a who's who of names and we're going to deep dive into that. But what coach left something non-basketball on you, something DNA wise, a soft skill that really affected you? Um, Bill Smith Peters, um, his devotion to Christ and God and the way he walked at every day, you know, and I watched him handle a couple really, really tough situations. As a matter of fact, the year we won it and upset Montana at Montana and got to play in the NCAA tournament, we started the year 0-5 and and it was more because of culture and climate stuff than it was talent. It really wasn't talent, wasn't the issue. But I watched him handle that and how he did that was just way better than anything I ever did. You know, I'm I'm like a bull in a china shop and I'm going to go fix it and I'm going to have standards and I'm going to have this and I'm going to have that. And, and Coach did, but he also had this tremendous heart for the people that he led. And and I I think I probably fell short on that a lot more than times when I got that right. You know, it just, he, you know, touches my heart to think about Bill and uh, he and Georgia Lee, his wife, they're still living and live in Spokane and um, just tremendous people. And um, he, he left, there's a lot of people that have left big things on my heart, but Bill's the first one that comes to my mind. Jeff, before before I had a chance to, to uh, host coach uh, last year at a clinic, my only connection to him is that we were both in the Cisco's catalog selling products. So <laughs> that was that was it. But but um, Thank you, Jim Blaine, ex- exactly. Blaine. Thanks to Blainer. But uh, coach, you you mentioned two names that are very near and dear to my heart: Coach Meyer, Coach Litz. Um, we, we lost Coach Litz about a yeah, year ago. Wasn't it? Was in the fall. Yeah. It, yeah. it just uh, both men invested in me and, and just gave so much to me and, and influenced my philosophy. I mean, I learned the matchup from Coach Litz back when it was called the Fresno. You Fresno know, matchup. Yeah. Exactly. You yeah. know. And so talk a little bit about your experiences with them, some stories, and, and also Dan Ace, because I know that um, Coach Meyer would often refer to him in, in conversations. Yeah. yeah. Frick, man. We can't play a lick. That's Coach Litzenberger. <laughs> so when I was so fortunate, Fred, my wife and I, and then we, we lived in the same apartment building with Fred and his, the men's GA, Ralph Schutzley who coached with Coach Folda at um, – he was Joe's assistant at Southern Colorado for about nine years. And now Ralph's coach – well, he was coaching. He's just – he's teaching physical education now back at his alma mater in Cary Grove in Chicago area. But 
<clears throat> so Fred and Ralph and I and Judy, my wife and I, the four of us did stuff together all the time. And and I just love Fred. He was just so great and taught me so much about the game. And he had just come from being Boyd Grant's assistant with Ron Adams and and Thrash, Sylvie, Jim Thrash. Was Sylvie Dominguez on that staff as well? Was that yes, I think he was. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you, a funny story about the Fresno matchup, which everybody calls the amoeba now, they used to beat Tart all the time when he was at Vegas, right? And so then Boyd retires. Those were the two years Fred was with us at Eastern Washington. And then Boyd unretired and went back to his alma mater, Colorado State. And Fred went with Boyd to Colorado State. And Fred and I just stayed in touch all the time. Well, all of a sudden, Park's running the Fresno matchup with Tracy Ogman and all those guys in Wanna State and Johnson and, and uh, Anthony, Greg Anthony, and those guys win a national championship running nothing but Fresno matchup that he couldn't, <laughs> he changed the name to the Amoeba. But anyway, um, my first two years, I love that. I love that defense in it because I really feel like, and I tell people now because the game has changed and kids will not let you, I, I could be wrong and I'm not coaching right now. So, you know, take this with a little grain of salt. Uh, and I think if you got the right relationships and the right kids, you can do it. But I think teaching man to man defense the right way is a war and you've got to have a tremendous and it's a long teach it's hard. You've got to ask for total commitment. It takes a lot of practice time. And you can, it's hard to get kids to do that anymore. You can get the exact same thing when the ball's at the wing, running a Fresno matchup with ball pressure, push it baseline, front and bury the post. You got two, you got a high eye and a low eye by going to your home bases by being in the matchup, which is a way easier teach. And I would almost run nothing now but Fresno matchup and the buzz. And I'd change the sprint from the long sprint or the short sprint to what I call a stay sprint. I'd just follow my pass to the corner and then go out and deny the reversal and we're like in man-to-man, -man, but I'm going to run the exact same sprint that I would in the, in the buzz. So I'm not teaching two different sprints. And I'd, and I'd do nothing but run those two defenses and 2-2-1 in different ways in the 2-2-1 back to – Back to them. I wouldn't. I wouldn't fight that grind to teach a man-to-man -man defense anymore. I just wouldn't. It's interesting you say that because I remember Coach Meyer talking about that. Two areas of weakness for young coaches was teaching zone offense and press offense, and yep. you just said it right there. Running those, you're you're going to at least give yourself a chance. Well, how many times you know? And I'll ask kids this all the time when people ask me to come and do a camp or do a clinic or something. And I'm working with a group of kids. And I'll say to him, how many of you have ever been told by a coach you need to be tougher with a basketball? Every hand goes up. And I say, okay, what's your coach tell you after that? I don't know. What are you talking about? Well, how do you get tougher with a basketball? What's that mean? I said, here's five things to him. And I got this right from Don. Work from triple threat with your wrist locked and cocked. Don't let it get floppy wristed. Catch with your feet in the air. Pass your feet on the floor. Fake a pass, make a pass. And then play with an easy pass mentality, not an assist thread the needle pass mentality. And if you do those five things, you're going to be tougher with the ball. That makes you better in press off, press offense and zone attack. You do those four things, 
five things and you'll be tougher with the ball. And that's why those defenses are hard to play against because you've got to be fundamentally sound. And the ball movement becomes more important against the zone than the player movement. Coach, I had never heard of the buzz until, you know, until I came across your content. I would love to hear the origin story about it and just over the years, how it's, how you've you've changed your philosophy with it. That's interesting. It's uh, when I was with Bill Smith Peters at Eastern, we had a great post player. We had an all American. I think she became an honorable mention, all American Brenda Souther. She blocked like a hundred shots her freshman year. She was really talented. And um, so we could throw the ball over the top of stuff a lot to her. And she just catch and finish, you know, So we were playing a guy named Dave Olmstead, who was the coach at Portland at the time, University of Portland. And we played them, and he's telling me about this defense, and I'm like, what? What is this? And and we won by like 26. I didn't pay no attention because we just kept throwing it over the top to Brenda, you know. And um, they couldn't – they didn't make enough adjustments or didn't do what they needed to do, right? So then we play Oregon State later that year, and the coach is Aki Hill, who was Japan's I think Aki was Japan's Olympic coach. Um, I could be wrong on that, but she was a high-level coach from Japan. And she was running the buzz, and I saw her warming up her team with it before our game, and they were running it right from the three-point line. And there was a three-point line that year, but it was experimental. And they'd never go out further than that. So it wasn't effective against us, but we were a really good passing team as well. And then – so that was the first two times I saw it. The next time I saw it, I was playing against Dave's team when he was coaching at Pacific College in Forest Grove, Oregon. I had a really good team. And Allison McNeil, we were at a tournament together. Allison was coaching at Simon Fraser. She had great teams, great teams, basically the Junior Olympic team at Simon Fraser. And we lost in overtime. I had Julie Stringer, who was a tremendous player. I got stubborn, and I'm running Carolina break with a little adaption to it against zone. And I'm like, we're freaking running secondary break, swing the ball one to four, make one more pass and we'll flash from behind. Well, we couldn't make the second pass. And we kept turning it over, turning, we turned it over 42 times. I about lost my mind. It was, we lost in overtime. And then I felt a little bit better the next night because Allison's team turned it over 44 times. And, um, I, they're running the buzz high with those guards up. And I'm like, Ooh, this is it. It was hard to play against. And one of the things I've always paid attention as a coach is what's hard to play against. Well, then a really good friend of mine, Julie, uh, Heisey was Van Beek who played at Northwestern, uh, Northwest Nazarene became Finkbeiner's assistant at Southern Nas. And we were just starting to go to the NAI tournament at Lewis Clark state. And Julie kept telling me about this buzz, and I had never seen him. And I didn't realize it was the same defense I just explained to you, done different ways. Jerry ran it. He calls it the twilight zone. Lower, wider, softer. They don't quite trap. They get in the passing lane more. Um, I don't – that doesn't fit me. And, uh, but it was similar. And, I, and so I, one time I called Jerry, and I said, will you tell me what this is, will you, please? Actually – Actually, I think we lost to Oklahoma City. I, I think Ken Stanley was running it. But he had a 6'9", six, 6'7", six, post player who was 20, 29 years old, 
Taiwo Rafiu in the middle. He had a great, great team. And it wasn't just the defense, but I didn't, again, I didn't like playing against it. You know, I could feel it. It made me edgy the whole time. I never felt comfortable and, and the kids never felt comfortable. I didn't like it, you know, and it just what it created in, in my team bugged me, you know, and I, we, I always felt like we were pretty sound fundamentally good passing team and, and um, it just bothered me. And so I reached out to Jerry and I said, Jerry, what is this? And he goes, I'll send you a fax. So he sends me a fax with the three positions on where the ball is and the home base is based on where the ball is. That was it. That's what I had. And I sat on it for a year and I didn't like it. I'm like, God darn it. Do I really want to do this? And, you know, we're pretty good. And, and then I thought we lost to it again in the national. Maybe that's the year. That's the year we lost to it at Oklahoma City the first time. And I was like, enough of this. I'm freaking putting this in. And so I put it in and we're 26 and 0 and the number one ranked team in the country. And we get beat at the buzzer on a half court shot by a team we'd beaten twice by 25 because we relied too much on the buzz and didn't get good in our stay good in our man to man. Cause the kids figured out really quick. Oh, if we don't play hard in the man to man, he'll switch to the buzz and we'll just get to do that. So learning lesson. So that's kind of how I started with it. And then I just kind of kept it and I really liked it. We won a bunch of games with it. And I think, uh, I think every NCAA tournament game we won at uh, at Green Bay was because of the buzz and the dribble drive, except for one. When we beat Little Rock, Joe's team, that was a really high-level game. We won the next two nights later against Michigan State to go to the Sweet 16, and we beat them by like 26. But that game with Little Rock in the first round at two mid-majors was a hell of a basketball game, one of the – toughest games I was ever in and we couldn't run dribble drive because they guard the ball too good. And I had played against Joe's team when he was at Arkansas tech, our first year at the national tournament, Joe was a coach at tech and Lewis Clark state played tech in the first time they beat us 16. And so Joe and I got to be friends, you know, he likes talking to me because we lost. And so um, we've been friends a long time. So when we got paired against each other after the show, I get up to my office and he calls me, how good are you guys? I said, hey, don't give me that country boy. How good are you anymore? We can't play. I'm not. I, I bought that the first time. We'll be ready to play. <laughs> so, um, but that game, secondary break, Carolina break, the four out one in motion, won us that one and, and the buzz. We couldn't guard him in man to man. He's running pairs motion. Knights hold pairs motion. It's just awesome offense. Really hard to guard in our push it to the side because the ball's in the middle third of the floor all the time. Everybody's one pass away. There's no help side, and it's just really hard to guard. Really hard. Jeff, I got one more question. So I coached at Chapel Hill High School for five oh. years. So, of course, the requirement at Chapel Hill High is you're supposed to run Carolina's secondary. That's yeah. kind of like written in the unwritten oh, yeah. rule contract. <laughs> so – the one debate that I, I would have, and I remember Fran Fischilla talking about this, was that the tendency of teams to run secondary is that they don't look for primary breaks enough. What, exactly. what are your thoughts there? Oh, ab absolutely. I ran, I put it in in 92, the year after I ran Westhead stuff. I loved Westhead stuff. We were 13-1 and one to start the year, and then I had two starters. One broke a wrist and one hurt her knee skiing at Christmas. And we ended up 16 and 10 and I just kept looking around, looking around and I put, but it really helped us run Carolina 
92, 93 was the first year I ran Carolina. And we ran that every year, the rest of the time, the four out one in motion, ran it at Idaho, ran the rest of my time at LC, which was not 11 more years, and then seven at Idaho, and then four at Green Bay. Um, it was it was incredible. I, I just love it. But there, I learned so much with that. Um, but you're right. You, you get to – you got to be really careful about – uh, not exploring primary breaks. Like one of the things we tried to do is always find a five that could run. I didn't like to let them interchange. I always wanted the same person running and the same person inbounding the ball. Um, and so we'd like to make that one to five pass over the top and get some pressure on the rim. That helped us. The other was pitch it ahead early to the wing and then look for a quick skip. And then you'd get the back screen lob. Um, but the quicker that thing went side top side, the more lobs you got, the more scoring options. And then I had one more thing to it that was really effective getting us into motion was if the four came off the back screen and didn't get the lob and we threw it to the step out who set the back screen back to the top of the key, right. we'd flash the four back up the rail and then hit the four and then we'd play from there. So five would get one more seal out on that second side um, and then we'd play motion from there. And that was – that was highly effective for us, but you're right. You can, you can miss them. You, you gotta be, you gotta be careful. You, you gotta play the way. The one thing about the, the secondary break is it allows you to play any way you want to play. If you want to, if you got to be a little deliberate cause you don't have the right people, you know, um, to go fast all the time. Um, then, then you can do that. And if you want to go fast all the time, because you have to, I heard something really good from that. And I made this mistake twice as a coach. I knew I, we were playing a lot of tech one time and I decided I wasn't going to play athlete for athlete with them. And I had Leilani played in the WNBA and, and, but we didn't have a lot of text talent and we should have walked it. And I heard, or we should have played because when you're playing against better athletes than you have, why would you want to play every possession against five set defenders? You've got to get some baskets in transition. And when I heard that from, from Hubie, I'm like, that makes total sense to me. And so sometimes when you got less talent, it might be best for you to run because you don't want to play against five set defenders every possession. It is. And the name Joe Foley in women's basketball circles, he's not the – Biggest name on the circuit, but if you ask coaches, Joe's team is always there. And, yeah. and Layson, talking about Wisconsin Green Bay, in women's basketball circles, you didn't want to go there. And it had nothing to do with the weather. They just had a team that they got every ounce, and they they played with the chip that it didn't matter, La Tech, whoever, Big 12, Big 10, that uh, scheduling, you know, probably was Coach's biggest challenge. Yeah. Uh, but, Coach, with the buzz, let's stay one more second on it. What skill attributes would you recruit for one, two, three, four, five? Would you really like to see? Aggression. It's simple. Aggression. If you're a safe kid and you're afraid to, like, I'm going to take the kid that I'm yelling at all the time in man-to-man -man defense. Stop lunging. That's the kid I want in the buzz. 
The exact opposite of what you want, man, man. That kid that will fly around and wants all them steals and just drools coming out of both corners of her mouth because she thinks she's going to steal the next pass. That's the girl I want. And this is tough. You take those Green Bay kids. People think we were all big, and we were not big. Kayla Tetzlog and Julie Weider were six feet tall. Now, Julie Weider was a freaking beast of an athlete and was a first-team All-American. She had 13 steals in one game. And we took her out, not realizing how close she was to setting an NCAA record um, for steals in a game. But she just could fly around and run. But uh, we played three point guards at the same. Well, yeah, Sarah Eichler could have played. Sarah was about six feet tall. She was our three. So we had three six-foot kids. And then Celeste and um, Megan or uh, Megan and, and Adrian Richard, they were five, six, five, seven. Five eight. We were not very big, but we were really aggressive. You were really tough, and you played bigger. You yeah. know the mentality. Yeah. You played bigger. You yeah, shot. You know, how you look at a team, and they just look like they play big, play taller. And then other games where you look like you shrink, shrunk up somehow. You know, right. we always played big. That's what the buzz allows you to do. I think because you have to. If you don't do that, you're going to get a beating. Yeah, we were very happy, Lace, and we were in the Big East. You'd. The kids were pretty girls, looked great on the media guide. And then you wake up, you look at USA Today, and you saw who they would upset. And then people caught on, like, don't play Green Bay. When, when Mike calls, tell him you're full. Then he'll ask, what about Thursday? No, we're full. We can't. Full. We got a contract. Well, you know, you just, the advice was you never played them. And, and the part you got screwed up on, is when you'd go to one of these destination tournaments. Tournament. That's how we get games. And that's that's what Carl Smesco does. That's yeah. how yeah, Carl and does people are thing. catching on that says, hey, listen, I'll come yeah. to your tournament. Who's in it? Well, we need one more team. Yeah, well, you know that you. team is Green Bay. It's Mesco. It's, yeah, yeah. And, and they knock off one or two killers a year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I have to share this. I have to share. This. That's exactly what they do. And I'm really good friends with Nels Hawkinson, who runs the Paradise Jam and the Bahamas tournaments. Nels yep. is one of the coolest guys in the world. And and uh, but it's hard. During the four years we were at Green Bay, we were six and one against the Big Ten. Now people say, well, you beat Wisconsin. Well, Wisconsin finished third. And we beat them by 26 on their floor. Um, we were six and one against the Big Ten. We beat Penn State in Cancun, who won the Big Ten that year. We beat Michigan State in the NCAA tournament, who was the Big Ten champion. We were 3-0 and against the ACC with wins over Virginia, Georgia Tech, and I can't remember who the other one was now. Anyway, 3-0 and against them, and then 0-1 uh, against the SEC when we lost to LSU um, in the first round of the tournament my first year there. But so we had a lot I Right. And I don't always claim women's basketball coaches. Oh, yeah, we to be beat the Kentucky. Brightest. We beat Kentucky. That's who it was. Yeah. But if I was a high major head coach, power five, and my assistant came in with a scheduling with a piece of paper that had Green Bay, he doesn't believe it. He might admit it, but he got some of those people fired because your AD doesn't know Green Bay is going to kick your ass. He no. just knows, hey, it's Green Bay and we're yeah. Penn State and we yeah. should beat them. Absolutely. And then you come home with a loss. Yeah. Yeah. 
that uh, that's crazy. But coach, one of the things you said early that I want to dive that I think a lot of young coaches miss um, when you were at Lewis Clark State, you said I think your baseball coach had an impact, and you talked to other coaches. And I think people now are in silos that. Again, I learned so much from other coaches. Yeah. You know, to me, baseball is a sport that if you're a hitter and you fail seven out of 10 times, you're in the Hall of Fame. So coaching, that is very, very different than what we did. But what lessons did you get from other coaches of different sports along your way? Well, that's a great question. And I, Jeff, I think that's exactly right. I think there's so much wealth around you in different, I mean, if you're coaching at a BCS school, you're surrounded. I think, think if you're in North Carolina, it's like I, we were doing our national collegiate recruiting conference the other day in Chapel Hill. And I'm talking, I'm like, Hey, if I'm a soccer coach, I I'm already over there talking to Anson Dorrance. They start practice next week. So I know he's around the office. It, you know, I mean, there's so many people to learn from. Ed told me my second year at LC, we won 25 and they hadn't won more than 15. And I don't think in any year they'd ever had at LC. And um, Ed came up to me and, and he'd had a couple national championships under his belt at that point. And he was about to win eight, eight more in a row. And then um, he says to me, he says, you want to win championships? And I said, you know, I do. After asking me, how long you stay in here? He said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm coaching here. I said, it's not like I got all kinds of people calling me. He goes, you don't? And I said, no, I'm a white male coaching women's basketball. That's just the reality. And he goes, well, I don't understand that. And I said, well, it's fact. And I said, I might be here a long time. Little did I know it was going to be 14 years, but I'm so glad I was. But anyway, Ed says to me, he says, you want to win championships? And I said, yes, I do. I said, I, I, I think you've set a really good standard here and it's very impressive. And um, I, uh, yeah, I want to do what you're doing. And he said, then you got to quit recruiting the nice kids all the time. What? You got to quit recruiting all the yes girls and the people that just do exactly what you say. And, and he was a hundred percent right. And I had an opportunity the next year to recruit a young lady that just was tough as heck, great competitor, tremendous competitive fire, tremendous competitive fire. But she'd sash you a little bit. She wanted, you had to earn her undivided love and respect. He wasn't talking about kids that are going to cause you problems socially and in this community and that kind of stuff. He's talking about those tough people that you have to be able to explain why you're doing something because they're not going to just blindly run through the wall for you unless they know why. Now, when they know why, and they see it benefits them or the team, then they'll run through every time. And I love, and what I found was I love coaching those kids. I love coaching those hard-nosed, tough kids that challenge you and are going to bow up on you sometimes if you're making a mistake because we ain't perfect, you know. And at LC, I was in a tremendous environment where I could coach those kids and be as hard on them as I needed to be because the AD was the pitching coach for Ed. Ed held a boxing smoker every year and no rules basketball, 50 on this team, 50 on that team, lock the doors, throw the ball in the gym and say, get it in the hoop, get it in the hoop any way you want. Um, that was Ed's mentality. He was so good at developing 
toughness on a team and just exposing it more than developing it. He could expose that fear and expose those people. And he believed that baseball was all about that one-on-one battle with batter and pitcher and whoever had the, the boxing smoker who would, who would bow. Now, whether you won or lost, it matter, but who'd bow up and fight. That's what he's looking for. And so I was in a situation where I could hold kids accountable and I've said this to people, and I, and, and I realized it a few years after I had gone to Idaho, I had a tremendous training ground at Lewis Clark State to, for coaching the game, coaching kids, loving kids, caring about kids. And the way you show kids that you love and care about them is by having standards for them and making them, giving them the opportunity to get to the standard. You don't love kids by lowering the standard for them, which is what everybody in education thinks now. That's the wrong way to love and care about kids. You're not helping them by making victims out of them. And I was in a great training ground for that. But that place did not prepare me for the politics of coaching Division I sports. It didn't. And I struggled my, at Idaho with the politics. And um, it was hard. It was really hard. And, um, but I, I cherish my time at Lewis Clark State and at Green Bay, quite frankly, because Green Bay was just like LC. I, there were some really tough kids. And I learned a lot from them. You know, it was so fun to coach them. Because if I and I could explain the how and why of everything, everything I was asking them to do, secondary break, four out one emotion. Kevin learned from the same guy I did, Don Meyer. And so the kids loved what I'm bringing, you know, Dick Bennett's old system, except we switched everything. The first year I'm there, we set the third lowest mark in the history of women's basketball for points allowed. Those kids were freaking tough. And I loved coaching them, but they'd also be, this isn't the right way to do. Well, let me give you an example. So this is something I learned about the buzz. So Katie Hardy, her dad, Katie Hardy and Rachel Porath are the two alpha dogs. Every good women's team has an alpha dog that's running the show. And if the alpha dog doesn't let anybody buy in, nobody gets to buy in. So you got to, they got to be on your side. You got to have them. And her and Katie were running a program. Well, so everybody's a little nervous about these two when I get there because Matt had coached there a year before I got there. Okay. And he's telling me, well, we got to be careful. Be careful. And, you know, and I'm like, we're going to coach. And uh, so the first time I meet Katie at camp, she walks by and we have to go down to the locker room, get this thing or something for the camp. And she goes, well, you know, you went to school with my dad. And I said, I did. At Winona State? Yeah. Yeah. Course, that's where he went to school, isn't it? And I said, Yeah. She and I said, Well, what's his name? Well, Hardy, of course. And I said, No kidding. What's his first name? Steve. I your dad, Steve Hardy. Well, yeah, I just told you that. <laughs> you know, just like sassy. And and so her and I got a connection already, you know. And it took Rachel a little bit longer, but so I'm teaching the buzz, and I made a mistake. This is what how I learned. This is when the buzz went to another level. Because I taught the buzz like I did Fresno matchup. I would do the guard drill and then I'd do the inside drill and I'd teach the kids to sprint to their home bases, teach them to be proactive and to get there on time. And so then I would do the two together, the guards and the inside players, and I'd put seven offensive people out there and we'd sprint and get to our spots. 
So we're doing this the first time and Katie and Rachel are always looking for some complaint about. So they're not happy about this because it wasn't Kevin's any either. So we're adding something new that they told Matt the year before. We're not running anything but our stuff, just so you know. <laughs> well, it's all the same stuff I'd done since 92. And so <laughs> we're doing seven offensive players out there. And Rachel's at the three spot, and she's, I can tell she's going to say something about two seconds. We do one possession, and Katie stops on top in the middle of the second possession, goes, This is stupid. And I said, What's stupid? We got seven players out here. This isn't game like. I said, Okay, fine. You two in the corners, off now. Five on five offense. You do whatever you freaking want to do. I don't care what you do, do it. You guys better freaking bust it. So the five of them, we do one possession, and I went and boom, like that. It was a whole stop, timeout. I just learned something from you too. Thank you. I just figured out watching that possession, all these years of teaching the buzz, I did a great job of teaching you how to run and sprint to your home bases, but I didn't do anything to help you fly around, anticipate, get the next pass. I don't teach it that way. Oh. Some teams you have to start that way so they can learn their home bases. But not them Green Bay kids, man. They got it like that. But what, when we got to teach that fly around and enthusiasm and reading the pass, man, we off we went. And it taught me a ton. And that was kind of the beginning, I think, of those kids starting to buy in. And, and it, it, helped, it helped us so much, so much. But I learned from them, and I think that's really smart. And, and it goes back to what Ed taught me. You can't coach nice kids only all the time. You got to coach some kids that bow up, and those are the kids that, ironically, I love coaching. I love them the most. Coach, I, I asked this question to Steve Smiley last year when we did a, a clinic, and basically it's if Coach Meyer were still with us, what – what would be his thoughts and his opinion of the state of the game and where we're at right now? I'd love to hear your opinion. Um, well, you know, in fairness, I haven't been in for seven years. I'm in a little bit right now with working with Dan and helping coaches, which I absolutely love to do. I, I have a mentality and I've always had this mentality that, the way you grow self-esteem in children is to have a standard, teach them how to get to the standard, and then when they accomplish and get to the bar, raise the bar. They get to feel that feeling of accomplishment briefly. And then, and it might be for the smallest thing. It might be just for catching a ball your feet in the air at first. But then you got to stop praising for that because it's an expectation now. And you can't give false praise. False praise, telling everybody they're great, which is the self-esteem era in education, excuse me, in education right now. We've been dealing with that for 20 years. All you're doing in that environment is creating victims. And I think coach would tell you that. We're creating victims because we're not allowed to make kids uncomfortable anymore. We're not allowed to raise the bar on them and let them get from this bar to that bar and be uncomfortable. They go to what we call the five P's of escape route thinking, of turning into a victim. One, it's personal. Coach hates me. The teacher hates me. Mom and dad hate me. Second thing is it's pervasive. Ah, it didn't mean anything to me anyway. Yeah, it did. You just busted your butt for six months to try to 
beat Simon Fraser when we're freaking good enough. You walk off the floor with your head up and let's go. Third, Jack Blaine. Well, I couldn't get to the shooter because Sally didn't call a screen on a skip pass. What? Freak screen? Fight through the screen. Let's go. There's no excuse. Get it done. Um, and the next one is uh, it's permanent. It's just too hard. I can't get to that bar. There's no way. And the last and the most damaging is parents, is the fifth P. And parents want to keep their children from ever being uncomfortable. And the ironic thing is in that discomfort is the only way that we can grow. And I think coach would tell you, we're, why, is, why is athletics even in education anymore if we're not going to be allowed to coach and make people uncomfortable and grow them and develop them and challenge them and stretch them? Because that's how you build leaders. That's how you build people that go into the real world and um, change our society and, and accomplish tremendous things. And I think there's a, there's uh, the NIL and, and all that student-athlete welfare. When I was coaching at Idaho and they brought that APR out, I'm like, I don't care about that APR. I could care less because as soon as they know they can own us, you, I can't leave. You, I can't have you leave because it will affect my APR. As soon as you start down that path, you got nothing. And now we just took it NIL and the transfer portal. So anytime a kid gets uncomfortable and we try to raise the bar on them or they're not getting their needs met from the team immediately, we enter the portal and leave. We got problems. I think we got problems. Do I have the exact answer for what's right? Because I know there's times where the kid made a they're in the wrong spot. Or the coach and them, they just they don't fit, especially the way the recruiting process is right now. You know, it, it, the kids are making decisions too early. Um, I think I've always felt that. They don't make decisions for the right reasons, especially at the higher level, because there's so many influencers around with their hands out that or just their image wants to be improved because the kid goes to this school or that school. And it, it, they don't think one one second about that kid's experience and kids make. And, and so I know there's some of that. So I'm not we have to be able to help those kids with that. And I think that's important, but not the way we're doing it right now. It's. I don't think it's good at all. I think that's why, quite frankly, I don't know them personally, but there's two high-profile co basketball coaches that walked away. Why? Yeah, I think, I think you nailed it. There's a lot of people that don't like the change because change is good for some things, but a lot of change right now is for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, we can't make victims. We can't allow them to be grow a victim's mentality, and we're supporting that mentality. And that's it's killing the essence of why athletics is in education. It's killing yep. it. It is. One of the questions I used to get asked a lot was, you know, I'm an assistant coach. He just wants me to recruit, or she wants me to babysit the kids, and all of that, how do I get better basketball-wise? I said, that's the easiest question to me. When I went on the road recruiting to South Carolina, you know, you get in the night before. 
I had seen every law and order, everything you've ever seen. But I remember College of Charleston. I called Bobby Kremen's uh, operations guy and said, I'd like to come to workouts. And he said, well, coach is out of town, but he won't have a problem. But we work out at six in the morning. I said, great. You know, and I got up, I walked in, had developed really good friendships with people. But I think young coaches, it's easier to complain than find a solution. And I think, sadly, our men's coaches are very open and share the game and their knowledge and will allow you to sit and learn. But what other suggestions would you give a young coach of how they can improve basketball-wise? Find one mentor that you believe in and learn everything you can. And I got a file right here on my desktop that says, Coach Don Meyer, email me and I'll send you a copy of the file. Or just go online. I got it right off of YouTube. There's so much stuff on Don Meyer is his notebook of stuff that one of his assistants put out. Find someone to learn from, you know, uh, one really, someone you really respect and learn everything you can. That's what I think. I've got one more before, actually, I got two more. One, what is the lost skill that between all these trainers and club coaches and people, what is one skill that has gotten lost in the game? And my follow-up coach, if I made you the czar of basketball, what rule are you changing? <laughs> wow. Um, so the one skill is do simple better. We, we got all these individual trainers. And I'm not, again, I, I apologize if I offend anybody. I'm not trying to. But we got all kinds of people that have all these fancy moves and all this dribble stuff and all this other stuff that if you actually did that in a game, your coach is taking you out because that doesn't fit. If you could just catch the ball with your feet in the air, drive it hard to the basket, attack the X and draw a help side defender and jump stop and throw a pass that's not across your body that doesn't get deflected and you can do something that simple, you'd be a hell of a player. But you could stand in one spot and dribble 17 times between your legs or do this or do that or shoot a jump back three that if you took that and playing from be out. Do simple better. And I, I really believe in that. Get really good at working from triple threat, taking a long, low, explosive first step, being able to jump stop on balance at the end of your drive, be able to attack the X hard. Um, shoot the ball on balance with your left foot as your pivot foot every time. Uh, on balance, unhurried, step into your shot. Um, what would I change if I was the czar and could do whatever I want? And there's a lot of things. Um, I don't know. That stumped me. Uh, I love to watch the game played. A lot of different ways you know i love west the way westhead did it i love oh god those guys at loyal marymount were so fun to watch you know um the buzz is unconventional i i like to think that i'm i'm unconventional 
you know, but also yet I'm very conventional. I'm old school and I believe in fundamentals and I like Chris Oliver's stuff with the zero second reads and Pasquale's uh, uh, disadvantage drills and reading the defense and all that. And so I kind of took, when I was in Hungary, I took all those mini clinics from Don Meyer and I added some of Pasquale's little small sided games and reading the defense and making reads in that to Don Meyer's clinics. I kind of put that two together and it was a really cool system of stuff, which I really like. I love dribble drive. I love motion. I love Carolina break. I, I mean, it, um, the game is so pretty when it's played together, when it's played together and for the person next to you. I tell people this all the time. Like one of the things I get to do is mentor coaches that are clients and spend some time. And, and I tell them about a book I read recently called the, the boys in the boat. I don't know if you ever read it, but people ask me, what do you miss about the game? You know, miss coaching. Hey, I, I love to coach again. You know, anybody's listening. I love to coach again, men's women's. I don't care. I love it. I love what I'm doing now, but coaches are coaches. It's that simple, you know? But um, I think um, the thing I miss the most is that book, Boys in the Boat, is about rowing, but it ain't about rowing. What it's about is in the very last chapter when they talked about the boys that got selected for that boat. And I don't want to spoil it for people, but if you coach or you're part of a team, please read the book because at the end, it explains so nicely the bonds that those kids had for each other the rest of their lives because of what they were willing to give for each other for the boat. And it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. What I miss are those getting a group of young women or basketball players to sacrifice themselves and give their heart, their soul, their, their, everything they got to the team, to the team, to the team. And when you see that, I don't care what the score is. One of the most gratifying times in my life, we lost to Allison again at our place. We had a great team. She had a great team. I think we were ranked third. They were ranked second. We missed two free throws late and got beat by one. And and those kids had given every single thing they had for over a year to get that done. And we went in the locker room and they were completely spent and had completely exhausted themselves, not just game day, but every day on that one focus. Man, there's nothing like that. Nothing. And to me, that's what coaching is all about, is getting people to sacrifice for the team. So if I could find one, and I don't think there is one, but if I could find one rule or one concept that would make people, force people to give that to their team again, I'd put that in. Jeff, Coach threw out a name there that a lot of coaches may not be familiar with, Renato Pasquale. I would say go to YouTube, look him up, 
and yep. download everything you can find on Kim because yeah. those drills are amazing. Yeah. Anything you can get from Renato Pasquale uh, is really, really good. And Chris Oliver, quite yep. frankly, Chris is really, really good. Absolutely. He does. And we don't know each other at all, but I know of him. My assistant coach uh, at Idaho, he and I have been friends for many, many years. He played at Winona State before me when they were really good. And he played for a guy named Les Whitkey, who ended up being, you guys might know Les, he was the head coach. He was Henson's assistant after Winona State at Illinois. Then he went to Western Michigan. Then he was the longest tenured coach at Army for 10 years. And then he went back to Winona State near the end of his career. And Jeff got to play for Les. And Jeff Krause is his name. And he just studies and studies. And Jeff's 70 years old and watches tons and has been out of coaching for several years and just still teaches me stuff about the game. And he's the one that told me about actually Chris Oliver and the zero second reads and all that stuff. And Renato Pasquale and the one second advantage drills, the one second advantage drills can really help teach kids, no matter what offense you're running, whether it's dribble drive or motion or flex, don't matter, you know, but yeah, thanks for bringing him up. Uh, Jeff Krause was, has always been a big influence on me as well. All right, coach, let's have some fun. We always have a uh, thought provoking question. So give me a number between one and 65. 32. Are you happy with yourself? Uh, I, my daughter's here, and, and I, I need to be really careful about going too deep here. Um, no, go ahead. You've, I mean, it's been a show. It's been great. And, uh, yeah, it's a random question, but, yeah, they always make all three of us really, really reflect. Well, I think about that every day. It's been uh, – been a really interesting journey it's been very very hard very challenging for me personally um to quite frankly lose my identity you know i was listening to a podcast today that uh, my daughter gave me a couple weeks ago and i've been putting it off putting it off and i told her i'd start to listen again and and it talked today about why people struggle in retirement because they lose their identity and their identities, their job for so many men, you know, or being a, a father or a grandfather or which I am now and I absolutely love. Um, or, um, you know, we lose that identity, you know, and, and um, the fight to, to find that again has, uh, has been really tough. And, I love what I'm getting to do right now. I really, Dan Tudor has been an absolute blessing in my life and the coaches that I've been able to work with and work for and um, has been just a great six months. Um, you know, going to Hungary and getting a coach last fall was awesome, but my wife had to stay here. You know, my wife had, anyway, my wife has RA and so our medicine's really important and we can't you know, sacrifice that, but it was, uh, uh, 
I love, I just love coaching again. You know, I love being around the kids. I love, like we were talking about investing in, you know, and, uh, I don't know, seeing them accomplish and get to the bar is so fun for me. I just, I love it when you raise that bar. One of the things that we played a team, Chada, who was DVTK's big rival in the youth kids. And we got beat handily the first time we played them. And right before I left, about a week before I left, we beat Chada. And um, they were, you know, it was just really neat to see the growth and to see their excitement and what they'd given to each other. And it was just, it was really unique, you know, and they were just so genuine. Their emotions were so genuine. And to be part of that's really, really cool. And uh, I don't know, I, I, uh, it's an interesting time of life. You know, I, I would love to coach again. I miss it terribly. Um, I don't know if that's in the cards for me or not. Um, you know, I think if, I don't know, we'll see what happens, but I'm, I uh, am learning honestly to appreciate and be happy. The question was, are you happy with yourself right now? Um, I think being a lifelong learner and constantly looking for ways to grow and change is something that I've always been. And I continue to do that. Um, so I would say I'm in transition and trying to get there. I'm fighting the fight every day, you know. Well, Coach Perkins? I, I would say no. I'm not happy with myself because I know there's more I can do and there's things I could do better. It's that constant, it's that constant push of my – I start out with the right intention. My execution sometimes falls. And so being able to forgive myself and pick up and move on and, and, and just – try to get 1% better every day, you know, and, and not, not, you know, focus so much on the results, but just stay more focused on the process. I'm going to be different than both of you. I'm going to say I'm happy with myself, but I love the fact that the second half of my life is that I'm helping others, that I'm doing something even bigger and better. And, and I'm like you, I fall short, uh, like coach, I've got some questions. I have some things the man upstairs hasn't answered yet, but uh, it's like golf. I'm a lousy golfer, but <laughs> at the second hole, I get another chance to be a decent golfer. Yeah. And that's how I'm kind of viewing, you know, the, the second half of my life. But coach, now we'll have uh, our fifth quarter top 25 questions. Give me a number from one to 25. Uh, 10. All right. Yes or no question. Do you sing in the shower? No, I can't sing a lick. <laughs> All right. This is a quick hitter. Your favorite Halloween candy growing up? All of it. Anything <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> Anything chocolate. All right, our last one. Are you a lake person or a beach person? Both. <laughs> Both. Anything on the water and in the sun, I'll take I'll take either one. Yeah. Layson, I don't often speak for you, but I'm going to for the next 15 seconds and then uh tonight has been one of my absolute favorite oh, nights. And, and 
coach doesn't know, and I think a lot of coaches don't know the impact he has. You know, one of my wishes is if I hit lotto today, I could bring back all the kids I coach and just have one blowout hell of a party. Wouldn't but that be coach, fun? That would just be great. The imitations they do of us. and But, Coach, <laughs> I seriously, you won't know the impact you've had on younger coaches, on your players, and they're using lessons. If it's raising the bar, they're doing that with their kids, with their classes, with their sales team. And, and, and sometimes we are too hard on ourselves and we wish we could have done things different. But, uh, you know, tonight it seems like time has flown by, Lason, and this. Uh, we're going to have Coach back because we yes. can just keep yes. going. Well, I'd be honored. I, I love talking to you guys. You've been great to work with. And I, uh, yeah, what you, you know, it's really funny that you say that because one of the things I used to tell my girls all the time is we always, as human beings, we always underestimate the impact that we have on other people's lives, you know, and uh, how you do things matters and the things you say and what you do and your heart for others. And we always underestimate that. And, um, you know, I, I know I'm guilty. I hope I'm guilty of it. Uh, I appreciate what you said. Thank you. My pleasure. This, uh, again, was one of our favorite episodes with Coach, and uh, I think I'm on page five or six of my notebook. Uh, but, Coach, uh, our listeners, if they have questions or want some insight, and you brought up some Hall of Fame, not only coaches, but Hall of Fame people, wow. how can they learn from you, follow you? What can they do? Gosh, I don't uh... – uh, well, my email is, uh, I'll give you both my emails, uh, mike at dantutor.com. Feel free to reach out to me on there. And if there's, my territory is the whole West from the Dakotas down to Texas and everything West of that. So if there's a coach that wants to work with me, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but anybody that wants to talk, just oops, um, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me to do a mentoring, kind of a mentoring program. And and um, I don't know, I'd, I'd love to do that. I just can't get myself squared away to uh, figure out how to do that. But anybody that wants to reach out and set up a Zoom or talk some hoops or uh, I'm, I'm more than willing to help anybody that wants to ask. I uh you know, the things I can help, I'd be glad to help you. And my other email is MikeDeVilbus at Gmail. And my last name is spelled D-I-V-I-L-B-I-S-S. And sometimes there's curse words before and after, so you can keep those off that email. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. I really would. I love talking basketball. Uh, I love what the game can do for people. I love what coaches can do for other coaches. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time when I was uh, playing at Winona State, I I always felt like when I would go play Dick's teams, those kids were learning something I wanted to learn. I, learned, I knew I wanted to coach, and I wanted to learn the game, you know. And uh, I play some – and then Butch Raymond's teams at Mankato State. I mean, extremely well coached. And 
I just knew it. And it, I went out to Eastern and the first week I'm there, I'm hearing permanent pivot foot, triple threat. I'm like, what? And I was smart enough to realize this is the game. And I took all of Jerry's stuff and Don's stuff and put it into mini clinics and all the stuff we were teaching at camp. I'm just like, holy. And then before Don had ever done a video, before he ever did one that he sold, Fred had a copy of his zone attack that he filmed in practice. And I saw him doing post series and then zone attack. And I'm like, that's the game. That's the game right there. And it resonated with me. And so my point is when I started working for Dan, I felt the same thing with the recruiting. I always felt like recruiting controlled me. And then I'm seeing Dan's system and what we do for coaches. I'm like, this is the game. This is it. You know, and it's like the point is that I've I've been so blessed. It's not because I'm smart or gifted. I just I got to be around the right people that got that that allowed me. And I went in and thanked Coach Krause and Coach Litz and called Folda, thanked him, thanked Coach Smith Peters. You know what every and Coach Hadamer, the line coach, you know what every single one of them told me when I thanked them for teaching me? Make sure you share it. Make sure you share it to a person. Make sure you share it. And what I, what they taught me, I feel like I got to bring to a lot of kids in the game, you know? So I feel really blessed and thankful for that. No, it's great. And I led off, you know, the biggest compliment in our profession is a lifer, a lifetime learner, lifetime. And you just close with the best gift of paying it forward, offering to help and, and I think, uh, you know, Lyson and I take that to heart. And that's why we do what we do now and try to help some younger coaches. Yeah. But, uh, again, thank you. This has been the fifth quarter. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Lason Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. Social media. media. media.